like your uh, Bruce Lee shirt there, Will. It was that a uh, Christmas acquisition? Thank you very much. No, I uh, I actually got it when I was shopping at Old Navy about <laughs> four or five months ago. You know, I just saw it there, fourteen dollars or whatever, and I thought, you know what, I would like to have the dragon's energy coursing through my veins. Well, I haven't been into an Old Navy in quite a while, but uh, I guess uh... you can get cheap pants there. I don't know if you've heard. <laughs> <laughs> but there's something kind of warmly nostalgic for me about the fact that you can still go into places like Old Navy or when I was a teenager, it was Blue Notes and uh, get these kind of novelty t-shirts. When when I was a teenager, my favorite type of t-shirt was a novelty t-shirt from like a band or a movie or something, but I didn't recognize them as novelty t-shirts. I just thought they were really cool. Mm-hmm. Whereas, of course, you're wearing the Bruce Lee shirt, not ironically, but in a way that's uh, self-aware. Yeah, I mean, it's like, I know that it's sort of ridiculous to be wearing this shirt, but at the same time, I don't care. Uh, I I genuinely like it. And of course, if you wear a Bruce Lee t-shirt, you're also able to fight like Bruce Lee. You gain his power. That's true. That's what they told us on the schoolyard. Uh, And then you die under mysterious circumstances, too. No, no, no. Uh, Bruce Lee's not really dead. It's, uh, yeah, it's in a book. Uh, He was actually (laughs) undercover working for the Hong Kong police. Right, right. Of course. Uh, If you want to bust the triads, you'd send the world's most famous Chinese film star. Well, welcome back. Back to Michael and us, the show where we uh, regurgitate verbatim uh, bits from BBC's The Office. I'm Will Sloan, here as always with... I'm Luke Savage. Actually, well, before we leave the t-shirt riff, one more thing I want to say is you'll notice that this Bruce Lee shirt, they've made it look sort of retro. They've made it look kind of vintage. And you'll find that on a lot of novelty t-shirts that you can get at Hot Topic or at Old Navy or wherever they sell novelty t-shirts. Like if you see one of those racks of t-shirts that have, you know, Star Wars or uh, Indiana Jones or some other property, they've made it look like an old movie poster. And sometimes they make it look sort of like faded and, you know, they'll use fonts and stuff that would have been popular in the 70s and that's that's a way of you know even though you've bought a shirt for star wars the most popular thing ever ever uh, the thing that everybody in the world likes they figured out a way to make it look sort of niche <laughs> and he bought it at old navy too okay man i i hate it i mean this is just further vindication of i mean it's not our thesis but it's something we return to again and again about the way that everything is commodified now and what i mean by that isn't just that they commodified you know star wars or whatever star wars has always been a commodity bruce lee has always been a commodity what they're really commodifying there is, you know, a type of experience that you might have had in the 1980s or 90s, where you go into a vintage store or a secondhand store and you buy something that is actually quite rare, you know, something that actually was from the first run of something, you know, maybe not Star Wars, but just maybe, you know, some old movie or something like that. Or maybe you got that shirt during the first run. Maybe it's an even earlier experience that you're trying to replicate. You're trying to replicate the experience of being in on the ground floor of of Star Wars before it became the most popular thing ever. Yeah, I mean, fundamentally, it's about the experience of being part of a niche fandom or something like that. So what they've really done with this kind of like selling you vintage shirts that are actually brand new, but look vintage, you're not just buying the the product, you're not just buying the look and feel of something, you're not just buying into the brand, you're also buying a simulacrum of the experience of being part of a nerd culture like decades ago or a fandom decades ago. And yeah, who am I to judge? I mean, I bought this shirt i'm wearing it i I love this shirt like mission accomplished they did a great job (laughs) the system works folks how has your holiday break been luke it's been okay it's been cozy i didn't go anywhere on christmas i did not see my my family i mean my family's not in the same city as me so you know it requires travel anyway but just with omicron and stuff 
I mean, I assume every podcast that's been recorded over the last few weeks has had a little segment like this. But yeah, Omicron, it sucks. I've just stayed in with my girlfriend, watched a lot of movies, watched uh, TV. On Christmas, I had a little, uh, I had that YouTube channel with the, the fireplace going. Yeah, uh, yeah, we to had that too. A Spotify playlist called A Classical Christmas, which was quite pleasant. <laughs> uh, just exchanged, uh, exchanged gifts. Did some reading, didn't do Boxing Day shopping in person because uh, didn't feel safe. That's about it. Not much to report. How about you? Yeah, we we watched a lot of Christmas specials, you know, uh, in this exciting modern world. You can get YouTube on your TV now. So we would always search just like Christmas specials. <laughs> funny, sorry, just to stop you for a second. You said that and it's like, I've only had YouTube on my TV for like three years. What my brain did when you said those words was think, well, how else would you watch YouTube? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you could... You could watch it on a laptop, which is how I've been doing it for most of my life. But no, now you can get it on a TV, which is very exciting. So, you know, we would we would search Christmas specials 1960s and just have a great time watching them. Like I watch so of course you've seen the famous clip of David Bowie and Bing Crosby singing Little Drummer Boy. Everyone's seen that clip, everyone loves it. Well, did you know there's a whole special surrounding that clip? And it's shit. <laughs> <laughs> it's garbage from beginning to end but i i, I watched uh, i watched the whole thing and one of the famous behind the scenes stories of that special is that bing crosby i guess was a little bit rude to david bowie he was a little bit you know just generally a little unwelcoming and i think i figured it out because what you don't know about that special is most of it is just like a really corny special where bing Cro elderly bing crosby and his family they like go to a, a castle in in england that they're allowed to stay at and they meet lots of British people and they meet a British musical comedian who plays the maid you know it's like a guy a guy playing the maid and that's the joke a lot of really corny corny like the worst Benny Hill kind of British comedy and then in the midst of all this after the David Bowie bit Bing goes off on some riff about how oh you know it's a it's it sure is swell music you know terrific to sing and you know people sing in all sorts of different styles and then it fades out into the music video for David Bowie's heroes and it's <laughs> just Bowie's face, tight shot of Bowie's face, fully androgynous, singing heroes, and then it'll fade in and out of a full body shot of Bowie, like very slowly gyrating his hips back and forth, and then back into his face, back into the body shot, and then it cuts back to this very corny Bing Crosby special. I mean... Bing must have been so pissed that he had to put this in his special. <laughs> you know what this reminds me of uh, very strongly is, you know, everybody's seen the clips of the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan show, right? But many fewer people have seen the actual episodes of the Ed <laughs> Sullivan show on which the Beatles performed. A friend of mine, and I think this was over Christmas, actually. So in a way, it's topical. A friend of mine actually had those episodes on a VHS tape. And a few years ago over Christmas, we watched them. I'd only ever seen those clips, you know, on YouTube or uh, there's a documentary, The Beatles, The First U.S. Visit. I'd seen them in that. And you strongly get the impression that The Beatles were the only thing going on in those episodes of Ed Sullivan, <laughs> which was not the case at all. And it really helps underscore, even as The Beatles are in the, you know, their phase where the songs are like, I want to hold your hand, you know, like it's pretty tame stuff. It really underscores how transgressive it was culturally <laughs> because the other performances are people doing like, 
like I'm not joking, doing covers of how much is that doggy in the window and stuff <laughs> like that. Like it's the most prudish shit. It's hard to believe anybody was watching it. And the Beatles occupied only a small amount of real estate on uh, on the episodes they were on. And it's really incredible to see what the other stuff was. Oh, uh, I mean, I've seen so much of that other stuff over the course of the second half of December. Like I've seen every Dean Martin Christmas special now. And what I love about it, <laughs> if it's Dean Martin or Frank Sinatra, what I love is it's the corniest, <laughs> most family friendly shit. But in the middle of it is this man who is visibly an absolute scoundrel, you know, just... <laughs> You've got, you've got Dean Martin, who is probably just, just fresh back from his dressing room of like having sex with 10 chorus girls and drinking himself into a stupor and cheating on his wife from coast to coast. And then he gets onto stage and he's like, oh, I tell you, kids, uh, Christmas is a terrific time to remember what's important to us. And why, why did you know that the first Christmas happened 2000 years ago when it happened in a manger in a town called Bethlehem? <laughs> And it'll cut to the religious segment. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I suppose by the time this airs, it'll be 2022. So we should say Happy New Year to everybody. Happy New Year. We're going to limit the New Year content on this episode because on our Patreon, we're going to have a proper New Year's episode. Looking back on the year that was for the podcast and beyond. But for this episode, uh, we have something probably as much or more in the Michael and Us wheelhouse uh, as anything we've had for for quite a while. You know, we've gone off in this very kind of meta direction recently, you know, talking about Mark Fisher and self-referential blockbusters and stuff like that. Well, this one feels like a real return to red meat. We watched a 2016 documentary called Crashing the Party. Um, And I should specify a July 2016 documentary uh, (laughs) called called Crashing the Party. Between 1968 and 1988, there were six presidential elections and the Democrats lost five of them. And in the three elections in the 1980s, we had the three worst consecutive elections of any party in the history of the country. Until you understand why you're losing, it's hard to put together a strategy of how you should win. The Democratic Party could not get a big vision about what it wanted for the country and for the country to say, oh, that's what being a Democrat means. Ronald Reagan said, I didn't leave the Democratic Party, the Democratic Party left me. We were very worried that we were going into oblivion. You didn't want to stand around waiting for something bad to happen to the other guys to be able to make a case that you had a better set of ideas. I want to just give a few shout outs. Now, this is a film. uh, Film is probably being too generous. It is a cheaply made and uh, very uninteresting documentary about the Clintonite takeover of the Democratic Party. Uh, It is a pure hagiography, a kind of heroic narrative about a small band of renegades, you know, bringing the Democratic Party back into political contention after it had lost several presidential elections. So I want to do a shout out to two listeners who uh, made this episode possible because believe it or not, uh, we could not actually find this film. Uh, It was not streamable anywhere in Canada. It's only a few years old too. I couldn't believe it. Like, where did did this movie play anywhere? I'm genuinely curious. It doesn't seem to have the stamp of like HBO or PBS or some other brand. Uh, Did this just like fall out of the ether? I think it fell out of the ether and, and fell back into it 
pretty quickly. Um, the director is a guy by the name of David Sigel. I mean, it, it has a few appearances from people you've heard of. Uh, Jesse Jackson makes a brief appearance or a couple brief appearances as a, as a dissenting voice. There's a former head of the AFL-CIO who appears. Tom Brokaw appears. Bill Clinton appears. They probably got him for 10 or 15 minutes and they used like five minutes of what he says, chopped it up and bam, they've got a documentary. But so shout out to listener Justin. I'm not sure of Justin's last name, uh, but Justin helped us get our hands on this film that, you know, the elites tried to keep from us. So thanks, Justin. And if uh, you go to our Patreon, we're actually going to have a link to where you can watch this film. Oh, wow. Which God <laughs> knows why you'd want to do that. But but since one of our listeners uh, helped set that up, and since I know we have a few people who have a very immersive way of listening to the podcast, uh, we're going to put that up for, you know, the dozen or so of you who enjoy pain as much as we do. Oh, yeah. Have the world's worst watch party. Just... <laughs> 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 Bring in the new year right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, shout out also to Anthony Banau Simon, uh, who told me about this film. Now, Anthony is a listener. He's also a filmmaker himself, and he made a very well-received film in 2020 called Cane Fire. Uh, this is a film that examines the past and present of an island in Hawaii, uh, draws on his own family history. It draws a lot on uh, the role Hawaii has played, I suppose, as kind of an idiom in Hollywood cinema. It discusses the history of the labor movement in Hawaii. We're going to include a write-up that my colleague Alex Press did in Jacobin. That's going to be in the show notes for this one. Uh, check out Cane Fire if you have a chance. Uh, it's a much better documentary than this piece of shit we watched uh, today. Now, you might ask, uh, why the hell did we watch a documentary about the Democratic Leadership Council and Bill Clinton to close out the year of our Lord, 2021? Well, there are at least two reasons. There are at least two recent developments that I'm going to somewhat tenuously claim uh, make this less of a stretch than it might otherwise seem. One, I've been watching the new season of American Crime Story, so I've had Bill Clinton on the brain. This is the one about the Lewinsky scandal uh, and impeachment. The other comes courtesy of uh, no less than Hillary Clinton herself, who did an interview on MSNBC yesterday in which she said, I think that it's time for some careful thinking about what wins elections, and not just in deep blue districts where a Democrat and a liberal Democrat or a so-called progressive Democrat is going to win. Which is funny because I think the only place Place that she's actually won elected office is New York. Am I correct? It's New York State. <laughs> and, at, yeah. and at a national level, uh, <laughs> twice. Not so good. But, you know, yeah, I, I saw this, too. And I think they just wheel her out now just to provide sound bites that people can quote dunk. It happens once a month. I would say it happens a little less than once a month. I think it happens. You know, a number of people pointed this out. Hillary Clinton has actually been kind of ghosting in some ways since 2016. Mm. But she always reappears when there's something new to promote. You know, when she's got like a new book out about why losing 2016 wasn't her fault. Or, you know, there was that brief attempt, I guess, in 2017. There were They were kind of putting out feelers for what was obviously going to be a Chelsea Clinton congressional run. There was like a children's book or something. There was also the book the two of them wrote. I think it was called like uh, Gutsy Women or something like that, where it was a sort of coffee table book of 300 word essays about, you know, Maya Angelou and Ruth Bader Ginsburg. It was like Hillary Clinton claiming that she was in the lineage of like every feminist radical. Rosa Parks and Ellen DeGeneres and everyone else. <laughs> all the all the great. Hillary Clinton right now is promoting some kind of novel that she uh, ostensibly co-wrote. Uh, she's also got this master class, which uh, I think I asked you about it recently, and you said you haven't been able to bring yourself to actually watch this footage of her. I mean, the, the, the clip that's 
that they used to promote this masterclass thing was a clip of Hillary Clinton reading, I guess, the, the victory speech she would have given on election night and then kind of uh, tearing up and crying her way through it. It's a masterclass in resilience, is it not? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think that's the pitch. You know, it's pretty crazy. I mean, a lot of people reacting to that clip were asking the question, and I think it's a reasonable one, why would she do something like this? I mean, presumably they gave her a lot of money. I mean, how much money do you need? To me, if you are a serial loser in American politics, you know, and especially if you lost the 2016 election to Donald Trump, you know, you kind of should just take the L. I mean, just enjoy the unparalleled uh, material comfort that, you know, you get to live in if you're someone like Hillary Clinton. I don't know, go get a massage every day. Just enjoy your life. But Hillary Clinton is not, you know, the only figure like this whose time in American politics has passed and won't go away. And I really think the only explanation for it is that when you're a public figure on the scale of a Hillary Clinton or, or someone like that, when you have as much money as somebody like Hillary Clinton, uh, you know, when you're able to get paid kind of 50 or $60,000 for giving, you know, a 20 minute speech that you didn't write at a luncheon full of rich people or something, the only currency you really have left is status. And so you, you kind of can't go away. Like you just have to keep grasping for whatever prestige you can get. Hillary Clinton's stock has obviously continued to fall just as Bill Clinton's stock has continued to fall. And so, you know, those of us who've never been Hillary Clinton stands look at something like, you know, this masterclass clip and just see, uh, you know, loserdom consolidating itself. But I guess for the, the very few people who are still really into Hillary Clinton, you know, and haven't just migrated over to the K-Hive, which I think is very much the spiritual uh, successor to uh, the extreme Hillary partisanship. They look at this and they think it's great. And, uh, you know, Hillary Clinton is just a brand uh, responding to a market niche. The smart thing to do would be to follow the Al Gore model, you know, get a cause and become the symbol of that cause. That's right. I guess gutsy women isn't quite substantial enough a cause, is it? You know, one of the, one of the funniest things about the Gutsy Women book, if I'm not much mistaken, this is a book where they also included AOC as like as a figure following the lineage of Hillary Clinton, which is so, so funny because Hillary Clinton endorsed AOC's opponent in the primary <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, the much bigger reason why I've had all things Clinton on the brain was because I watched American Crime Story uh, season three, which have you ever watched any of them? There was the assassination or the murder of Gianni Versace was season two. I saw the OJ one, which I thought was good fun. Yeah, I mean, I think the OJ one is the best one. I, I found with uh, the Versace story, parts of it were interesting, but it's, it's just it wasn't a compelling enough story to really sustain itself over the duration. The OJ one, I think, suffered from a really appalling casting choice in Cuba Gooding Jr. Now, obviously, Cuba Gooding Jr. is not a bad actor at all. That's not what I mean. I don't think he's that great. <laughs> well, I think the big problem with casting Cuba Gooding Jr. as OJ Simpson is just that... He doesn't look like a football player. He does, Yeah, he doesn't look like a football player. Uh, and so he, he doesn't really physically resemble OJ Simpson. And he doesn't radiate that OJ Simpson charisma either. Yeah, I, I just don't think it worked. But fortunately, it had John Travolta in full like kabuki mode you know just full like Nicolas Cage like playing it to the rafters energy yeah he was really funny so was uh David Schwimmer as Robert Kardashian yeah. just saying uh 
just saying juice over and over again in the Ross from Friends voice. Could not get enough of it. Um, and so there are some really interesting casting choices in Impeachment, American Crime Story Season 3. Well, there's Sarah Paulson dressed up like a literal gargoyle to play Linda Tripp, which I thought was very funny. I think it's funny that for a very well-manicured Hollywood actor to play just a very ordinary-looking person, they have to dress up like their fucking Lon Chaney Sr. getting ready to do Phantom of the Opera. <laughs> I mean, so Linda Tripp is basically the main character. I mean, Linda Tripp and Monica Lewinsky are really the two main characters. Both played uh, very well, both very spirited performances. Clive Owen plays Bill Clinton and is heavily made up. There's like some prosthetics going on. Not a bad performance at all. Edie Falco plays uh, Hillary Clinton. And, you know, I'm a, I'm a big fan of Edie Falco because of her role in The Sopranos. You know, one of the great TV performances of all time. She did not work for me in this role at all. Uh, I don't think that's Edie Falco's fault. It's just because I cannot look at Edie Falco without seeing Carmela Soprano. So Hillary Clinton in this, to me, was just Carmela Soprano. And that, uh, that did not work. Overall, though, despite some pretty spirited performances and some interesting narrative choices, American Crime Story Season 3 just did not really work for me. It is 10 episodes long, which is just too much. This is a complaint I have about a lot of TV. I think one of the things streaming has given us is as people binge watch things, the lengths of documentaries and TV shows just get stretched and stretched further so they can wring more value out of these products. And it's not always conducive to good storytelling. It felt like about half of this series was occupied by just Monica Lewinsky and Linda Tripp's back and forth. And there's no real tension in that because you know exactly what's going to happen. So it, do it doesn't really work. I think the series also makes a number of cop-outs in that it doesn't really have a thesis about uh, about any of this. I mean, it kind of vaguely gestures at, at, at certain takeaways you might have. So Monica Lewinsky being treated unfairly by the press, Bill Clinton maybe being a bit of a scoundrel, but that's as far as it's willing to go. I mean, I would say it portrays Bill Clinton as somebody who, you know, exercised bad judgment, but then who himself was a victim of this vast right-wing conspiracy, this kind of very partisan process that was directed at him and would have been directed at him regardless of his actual conduct. I think it portrays people like Paula Jones as kind of grifters, as, as attention seekers in a way that I, I really don't like and I find pretty indefensible in 2021. I think the series is at best neutral on the various criminal allegations against Bill Clinton. And again, I just think in, in 2021, that's really a cop out. So overall, you know, I did watch the whole thing, uh, but it, it felt like a bit of a hollow experience, which is not to say uh, it did not feel like Fellini when compared to Crashing the Party, which we should turn to now. Well, uh, we all know that there's a left and a right in American politics, <laughs> but what if I suggested that there could be a third way? <laughs> Well, that is the thesis of this 2016 documentary, which chronicles the rise and rise of the Democratic Leadership Council, the renegade group of upstarts and disruptors, which in the midst of the Democratic Party's unprecedented losing streak throughout the 1980s, took the reins of the party, took it away from the special interests, took it away from those people, if you will, and you know what I'm talking about, and... <laughs> 
and refocused it, created a coalition that could actually win elections, culminating with the triumphant and historic election of Bill Clinton in 1992. <laughs> the triumphant 43% of the vote for Bill Clinton. Yeah, something that I don't think the movie seriously reckons with. But nevertheless, this is an exciting story about the triumph of ideas over politics <laughs> and about David heroically tackling Goliath in Washington. Uh, for those who don't know, the Democratic Leadership Council was founded in 1985, shortly after the disastrous Mondale-Reagan election. And their guiding principle was that the Democratic Party had shifted too far left. They don't exactly say it in those words in this documentary. It had become uh, too beholden to niche interests and had moved away from a message that could unite a winning coalition of voters and that there needed to be a sort of shift to the center, one that embraced social liberalism and fiscal conservatism, although even social liberalism is up for debate here. As the film opens, some of the talking heads who you said earlier diagnosed the problem in the 80s as the party had become a victim of its own success. Uh, Roosevelt and Johnson had built this wonderful middle class, but the party had lost touch with that middle class. The New Deal coalition was coming to an end. The party was talking narrowly to special interest groups, women, black people, uh, labor unions. I mean, Will Will is not exaggerating. That is almost exactly what the talking heads uh, in this documentary say. Uh, Tom Brokaw, for some reason, the retired news anchor appears and he says the Democratic Party had become captive to big issues. That's the phrase he uses. And then he goes on to talk about the Vietnam War and civil rights. <laughs> well, the yeah, the Vietnam War had shaken faith in the party of America's ability to lead. Uh, to be an international <laughs> leader. And that and that was a problem. You mentioned that uh, Jesse Jackson is in this movie. He's, he's sort of the villain of the movie. He appears as a talking head to sort of plead his case, but the movie makes the case that his rainbow coalition was simply not a powerful and large enough coalition. You know, they call them minority groups for a reason because they're minorities, folks. One thing I will say about this documentary, the only use I think it has is as a document of how a, a particular group of neoliberal Democrats uh, have self-mythologized. That's the only thing it's useful for, because there are so many unchallenged assumptions, so many tenuous claims made about all kinds of things that, you know, if you pull at any of these threads, the whole thing would, would start to unravel. And I think would start to unravel very quickly. I mean, right from the get-go, where the film opens by talking about the Democratic Party's lo electoral losses uh, in the 1980s. I mean, it's true that the Democrats lost three elections in a row, two to Ronald Reagan and one to George H.W. Bush. What the film doesn't mention is that during this entire period, the Democrats controlled the House of Representatives. They did not lose the House of Representatives between 1957, I think, and um, the Gingrich Revolution in 1995 uh, or thereabouts. It was Bill Clinton, this uh, great electoral wizard who presided over the demise of a 40-year period of Democratic hegemony in uh, the House of Representatives. Actually, Luke, the movie does address that because you'll remember that as they were growing in influence, the Democratic Leadership Council published a paper called The Politics of Evasion that outlined a number of myths the Democrats believe. And of the three that we hear in this film, one of them is the myth of the congressional bastion, that even if we keep losing the presidency, we'll still retain control of meaningful levers of power in Congress. Uh, their report argued that the trends that caused them to lose the presidency were still causing them to 
lose congressional seats. So maybe put that in your pipe and smoke it. Right. Congressional seats in like a handful of swing districts or places where they were competing for conservative voters or whatever. And look at them now. (laughs) (laughs) Democrats also controlled the Senate throughout the 1970s and throughout a part of the 1980s as well. This whole kind of mythology I don't think really holds up to scrutiny. Another problem with it is that the film and its subjects really shoehorn uh, Michael Dukakis into this kind of list of these, you know, tax and spend liberals that the party had to distance itself from. (laughs) And this just isn't correct at all. I want to read here from a great piece called Atari Democrats. This, I think, is one of the best write-ups on the Democratic Leadership Council. It was published a number of years ago uh, in Jacobin. It's by Professor Lily Geismer, who's done really deep work on the suburbanization of the Democratic Party. Uh, She's got a great book called... Don't Blame Us, which I highly recommend uh, and has taught me a lot. Uh, She writes, few figures better personified the new orientation than Michael Dukakis. As Massachusetts governor, he made explicit overtures to the leaders of the high-tech sector, emphasizing partnership is central to fostering a healthy economic climate. His administration worked to broker deals with high-tech companies and Boston-based venture capital firms, leading to a surge of new software, data processing, and computer manufacturing corporations in the state, and helping turn around its economy. By 1985, Massachusetts had the highest percentage of service sector workers and the highest average per capita income of any state in the country. Dukakis, his supporters glowed, had created a Massachusetts miracle. In 1988, Dukakis rode the wave of high-tech growth to the Democratic presidential nomination, making the successful revival of the Massachusetts economy the centerpiece of his campaign. He coupled promises of stimulating high-tech growth across the country based on the Route 128 model with concern for quality of life issues like traffic and air pollution, sprawl, and rising crime and drug problems. Though he lost the election after being defamed in the infamous Willie Horton ad and derided as quote-unquote the quintessential Massachusetts liberal, his platform won him a following among white-collar professionals in the metropolitan areas of Sunbelt, West, and Northwest. Four years later, the DLC's golden boy Bill Clinton placed high-tech growth and suburban professionals at the forefront of his policy vision in his own presidential bid. There they have remained ever since. In presidential elections in particular, the emphasis on stimulating high-tech growth and expanding opportunity in order to win educated professionals persists as the linchpin of the Democratic Party's electoral strategy. And then Geismer goes on to talk about how much this has alienated lower income voters, uh, many of whom have either stopped voting Democrat or just stopped voting at all. You know, there's this huge income bias separating voters and non-voters. You know, uh, we've talked about this in the past, but, you know, there's this stereotype, which is very much just something that you see from centrist liberal partisans on Twitter, uh, right? That the the average non-voter is somebody who has a podcast or something and lives in Brooklyn and uh, maybe voted for Jill Stein in 2016 and stayed home in 2020 or something like that. It's just not true. The average non-voter, the median non-voter, the typical non-voter is just is somebody in a lower income bracket who does not see themselves represented by either major party, rightly does not see themselves represented by either major party, and just sees no benefit to going out to vote, remaining registered to vote, anything like that. So that's part of the legacy of the Democratic Leadership Council as well. But so I think all that touches on a few of the myths that were central to the neoliberal takeover of the Democratic Party. First, this idea that the uh, existing Democratic coalition, which was still delivering majorities in the House and sometimes majorities in the Senate as well, even at the height of the Reagan era, you know, was not something that could be maintained. Secondly, the idea that interest groups cost the Democrats presidential elections. Now you've kind of alluded to this already well, but when they say 
interest groups. I mean, this really is a dog whistle. I mean, it's an attempt to triangulate a type of Reagan era rhetoric. It's a way of triangulating on the backlash against civil rights, triangulating the backlash uh, against all of the social movements to come out of the 1960s. I mean, the famous sister soldier moment, which is uh, briefly alluded to in this film, as you might expect, portrays it as this was just Bill Clinton distancing himself from from rhetoric that, that he didn't like and showing that he was a different kind of Democrat. But, you know, it's very clear, even in the very airbrushed portrayal of this incident that you get in Crashing the Party, that what this is really about was Bill Clinton saying, I'm not like Jesse Jackson and all those gross people he represented that 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 you God-fearing, hardworking white suburbanites rightly don't like. I mean, that's what it's that's what it's really about. I mean, it was the 90s liberal equivalent of, you know, Chicago welfare queens or something like that. It's so funny that this is a 2016 documentary because this is the kind of campaign they tried to run again in 2008 unsuccessfully. Bill Clinton was deployed a lot in that incarnation of Hillary Clinton's political life to say all this sort of dog whistle stuff. Oh yeah, and in some in some ways really reaching even further than than he'd reached because I mean there was that famous comment, uh, I think the quote verbatim, she was talking about Barack Obama then her primary opponents electoral weaknesses as she would have them. And she talked, I think verbatim the quote was uh, his inability to win over hardworking Americans, comma white Americans, which is I don't think I even need to unpack that one. And so it's so funny that this movie came out in 2016 and that Bill Clinton himself participated in it in 2016 because by then uh, the Clintons had adapted to the times a little bit more, at least in terms of rhetoric. You know, they're running superficially, but nevertheless we're running a very sort of intersectional quote-unquote campaign and trying to position sort of the Bernie Sanders campaign as being, well, like the 1992 Bill Clinton campaign. Or like the Hillary Clinton 2008 primary campaign. White populism was the phrase that, that often got thrown at Bernie Sanders, and white populism was literally what Hillary Clinton did in 2008. But now here's this documentary that comes out in the middle of 2016, right after the primary, that, that's very much like, oh yeah, we needed to reclaim the party for hardworking white people who just felt alienated by it. And we did a great job. But so I think the explanation for that, and I would I'd quibble a little bit actually with your narrative just now, I think the Hillary Clinton campaign in 2016 was in many ways just the crystallization. It was an attempt to consolidate this same coalition that Bill Clinton had built. It's just that the way that you appeal to uh, suburban knowledge professionals and, you know, more affluent liberal voters in 2016 is just different than how you appeal to them in the early 90s. All that very try-hard rhetoric about intersectionality and things like that, all of those kind of very cynical appeals to identity and those kind of things, I mean, that was a class pitch, I think. It was just mm-hmm. a class pitch to affluent voters that I think in many ways was kind of masquerading itself as a pitch to people of color. The other thing I would say is that, you know, Obviously, this documentary came out when the Clintons and Clinton Inc. were in a triumphant mood. They thought, you know, we're a few months from, you know, she's she about to do it. You know, Hillary Clinton's going to win. She's going to win a 20-point victory against Donald Trump. She's going to win a Reagan-Mondale-style landslide in the other direction because she's the most qualified candidate, yada, yada, yada. But they had other reasons to be triumphant, I think. And that was that Barack Obama very much continued the trends that Bill Clinton initiated. I mean, right down to having defeated Hillary Clinton in the primary, welcoming all these 
these Clinton-era figures back into his White House to run it and to provide him with the various options or rather non-options for how to respond to the financial crisis and things like that. There's a very good book called A Crisis Wasted that's about how Obama responded to the financial crisis. You know, one of the sub-theses of that book is that uh, the Obama administration basically became a second Clinton administration. I think it's very clear from reading Barack Obama's memoir, A Promised Land, that apart from good storytelling, which obviously he had and Hillary Clinton did not, I mean, Barack Obama is one of the most gifted political storytellers probably of the democratic age. I don't think that's too much of a stretch to say. Just an absolute master of weaving these very evocative but but simultaneously very broad political narratives that allow all kinds of different people to project whatever they want into them. Barack Obama definitely understands that that's one of his gifts and he understands that that was part of his appeal in 2008. One thing I don't think he understands is that really the major reason people got excited about him is because they thought he was a transformative figure and they thought that he was a populist figure. Obviously, if you read the audacity of hope carefully, if you examine Barack Obama's speeches in 2008, you would have seen things like him praising Ronald Reagan. You would have seen very clear statements that uh, he and his people wanted to work within the framework set out by Reagan and not overturn it or anything like that. But I don't think that's what most voters saw and I don't think that's why why Barack Obama generated the kind of excitement that he did. He generated that excitement because he was a hugely charismatic figure who people thought, because he said so, was leading a mass movement of groups that had formed to oppose the domestic policies of George Bush and to oppose the war on terror, the Iraq war, things like that. And that is just not how Obama governed, but it's also just not how he saw himself at all. And I think to this day, a lot of figures in the democratic orbit, their understanding of Obama 2008 is, well, it just allowed us to keep doing all the Clintonite stuff, uh, all the neo-Clintonite stuff we wanted to do. It allowed us to continue leaning on affluent suburban voters as a crutch, leaning into kind of the lingos of Wall Street and Silicon Valley, but hey, we got better at storytelling. And, uh, you know, it wasn't really about any of that anti-war shit or getting tough on Wall Street or, you know, economic populism or, or anything like that. And I would strongly dispute all of that. So I think in 2016, or rather in July of 2016, when this film came out, Clinton Inc. and the Democratic Brain Trust, the Democratic grandees around it, really did have reason for feeling triumphant about everything. They had good reason. I mean, they really thought we were about to finish the project that was started in 1990. And, you know, there's that famous Chuck Schumer quote, which really summed up the spirit of, you know, that summer and that fall right up until uh, a certain evening in November where he said, for every blue collar Democrat we lose in Western Pennsylvania, we will pick up two moderate Republicans in the suburbs of Philadelphia. And you can repeat that in Ohio and Illinois and Wisconsin. And uh, we know what happened next. We really believe that if we offered an agenda that the American people wanted to support, that they'd return us to national power. So what you needed was what I call the new Democrat. The Democratic National Committee felt that we were challenging the leadership of the party. And to some extent, they were right. Al Fromm saw something in this young governor, and he knew it would take a spirit and a charisma and an intellect like Bill Clinton's to bring it. It was an effort to put an all-star team on the field and show we were going about this in a different way. While well, the Democratic Leadership Council was founded in 1985, its founders included the likes of Chuck Robb, Bruce Babbitt, Sam Nunn. Its early members included such figures as Al Gore. 
though hated by the democratic establishment <laughs> and hated by the labor movement that had a stranglehold on the democratic party's policies the council gained support slowly but surely one brick at a time uh, they they chartered a train at one point that's pretty cool <laughs> they went from town to town doing events and town halls and meeting with politicians they were accused of not being diverse enough of being the southern white boy caucus after a year or two they began to make some active efforts to to recruit non-white people with a message that boiled down to our inner cities are in trouble. Uh, government is not there for handouts, but government is there to provide a base of support. And uh, this this message resonated strongly with at least at least one black person that we see in the film. I, I love how this I love how this documentary ends with this montage, this triumphant montage of photos from the golden age of the Democratic Leadership Council, and it's you know pictures of like Bill Clinton like smiling with groups of donors and people like that there is not a single black person to be found in any of those photos in that triumphant final montage so the movie the movie never quite is able to sell the idea that well you know yeah we started as white but eventually we got a lot of other people on board it doesn't really <laughs> doesn't really happen and all this gets at a few other i think core myths embraced by this film and its various subjects Myths that I think really just come apart the moment you start to interrogate them. You just touched on one of them right now. I mean, this whole idea that the DLC were these outsider renegades, which really is how they they see themselves. They see themselves much like the uh, Blairites, the New Laborites in the UK, as this band of outsiders who were rebelling against orthodoxy and were rebelling against an establishment that wanted to stop them. And I mean, again, this falls apart when you start to look at who donated, the <laughs> kinds of people who donated to the Democratic Leadership Council, the kind of the kinds of people uh, to whom its ideas were very, very useful. Small donors, right? Like, you know, kind of John and Joe Lunchpail giving $5 out of their weekly check. Yeah, John and Joe Lunchpail chipping in a few bucks after up punching in at J.P. Morgan Chase. How did, how did they afford that train that they chartered, by the way? <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, this, this, I think, is a really important point because it is so crucial. You know, if you want to understand how figures around the Democratic Leadership Council understand themselves and why they simply won't go away. I mean, every six months you get a James Carville interview. I mean, we've talked about his uh, his last press tour on this show where he says exactly the same thing that Hillary Clinton just said yesterday about what if we moved away from these activist groups and these liberal ideologues and we embraced, you know, the, the hardworking, you know, well-off uh, people of the sensible middle. They always say this as if it's like, first of all, as if it's this one weird trick that works every time, which is a fact belied by 20 2016, I think very strongly, I would argue belied by a whole bunch of other things as well. Secondly, it's always posited as if it doesn't represent what the Democrats do already, what they have overwhelmingly been doing for three decades now. It's always presented as if it's like some new insight. Well, hey, what if we tried this? What if we tried running in the neoliberal center? That might work. I think that's where it's very important to understand that figures like Bruce Reed, Bill Clinton, the other people we see in this documentary really have retained uh, this idea that they were this heroic band of outsiders, these scrappy under underdogs taking on Goliath. And I think this is a strain that runs throughout the Obama camp as well. Uh, one of my favorite pieces of writing on Obamaism ever was Corey Robbins' wonderful essay in Descent on the Obamanauts, where he just read all these various memoirs that have come out of people who were in and around the Obama White House. And this is a point he makes about 
the Obama knots as well. He writes, the self-styling is a tell of how a supposed unfitness for politics makes you all too fit for politics, of the conflation between insiders and outsiders that is common to the Obama knots regardless of race, class, gender, or sexual orientation. Outsiders are supposed to be good because they bring the perspective of, well, outsiders. Before he worked in the office of the White House counsel, Sean McDutta was pressing his street cred in the fundraising arm of the Obama campaign. His pitch, quote, you need someone who really understands the mid-Atlantic, the less established donors, the real estate developer folks. That's what passes for heterodoxy in these quarters. So this myth, I think, runs not only through the Clintonite people, but also through the Obama knots as well, and is something that a lot of fiercely ideological neoliberal Democrats have really retained, even as they've wielded the levers of power in American politics and within the Democratic Party. Few establishments ever really want to view themselves as the establishment, you know, unless we're talking about, you know, a hereditary monarchy or something like that. In an American context, especially, no establishment ever wants to think of itself as an establishment, and these people are no exception. One of the other myths, I think, that's really central to all of this uh, is the idea that the third way did not actually represent a rightward turn. This is something that one of the talking heads in the film, I can't remember which, says explicitly. They say, well, we couldn't move too far to the left because there's no voters there, but we also couldn't move to the right because, you know, there already is a Republican Party and we're supposed to be the Liberal Party. And it's hilarious that you see this formulated in various ways throughout the movie and it's always followed by somebody laying out what one of their non-left or right but forward positions was and every single one of them just sounds like warmed over Reaganism. So there's a really hilarious segment. I did get, this film did get one laugh out of me uh, and it was when they were talking about how the Democrats needed to be better on defense. You know, national security was a was an Achilles heel because the Republicans had successfully portrayed you know, Walter Mondale and Jimmy Carter and Michael Dukakis as these mushy libs who, you know, wouldn't stand up to the bad guys on the world stage. And so they talk about this paper that the DLC authored about uh, you know, how the Democrats could get sensible on defense. And they said, you know, what we did is we offered a really strong critique of Reagan's military buildup. And you think, okay. And then they say, we pointed out that we really weren't getting our money's worth. <laughs> and that's the strong critique of Reagan's military buildup. Well, listeners may be wondering what some more of the DLC's ideas were. In a 1990 conference, they unveiled a set of their principles, which included to expand opportunity, not bureaucracy, <laughs> to prevent crime and punish criminals, not explain away their behavior, uh, that the private sector was an engine of economic growth, and equal opportunity but not equal outcomes. And uh, modern day Bill Clinton says of this, and I'm quoting, we thought you could be pro-growth and pro-environment. We thought you could be pro-labor and pro-business. We thought you could be for civil rights and high standards of accountability and education. We believed the government was neither the solution nor the problem. <laughs> and the Republicans had put us in a box of, if you wouldn't say the government was always the problem, you were always for big government that would tax people to death and regulate the ones that were left behind. I know you feel, Luke, that the Democratic Party has not done a good job weaving a narrative, but, you know, what do you say to that? <laughs> it sounds like the best of all possible worlds to me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that is why it was rhetorically successful. Although I do think... Uh, between... Briefly, for, for a time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I do think between Bill Clinton and Tony Blair... Uh, I think Blair was much better at this kind of, uh, he was better at making triangulation seem like it was ideologically innovative than Bill Clinton. What was it that made Blair better than Clinton at it, do you think? 
Well, there's the uh, the Tony Blair labor conference speech that I think is from 1998 or 1999. I can't remember which. I've uh, quoted it copiously on this show because I think it's the best summation of third way ideology that you could find anywhere. And it's just a speech that I think would be difficult for Bill Clinton to give. Tony Blair, in some ways, had a more difficult task than Bill Clinton in consolidating the neoliberal consensus in the UK because he wasn't just grappling with liberal and conservative traditions. He also had an embedded socialist and social democratic tradition that he had to appease in some way or that he had to kind of gesture at in some way. So for me, Tony Blair's uh, versions of this had before them a much taller order. In his speeches, there's a very concerted effort not just to put the liberal and conservative traditions in the dustbin of history or the liberal and conservative traditions as they'd been known, but also to put all of the kind of grander ideologies of the 20th century, the kind of utopian ideologies of the 20th century in the dustbin of history as well, while positing new laborism as this perfect synthesis. So all the things you like, all the things that worked about the past, about the 20th century are still there. We're not here to bury the state. We're here to use it in a way that's smart and that works. We're not actually abandoning democratic socialism at all. We're just abandoning a retrograde version of it represented by Clause 4 in the Labour Party's constitution, which which Blair famously amended, and which Hugh Gateskill, who was a leader of the Labour right in the early 1960s, who never got to be prime minister, had tried and failed to do, famously pertained to worker ownership of the means of production. Blair wasn't saying exactly or explicitly that he wasn't a socialist. His amendment of Clause 4 began with the words, the Labour Party is a democratic socialist party. Now, of course, all of that was bullshit, but it represented, I think, a much more difficult task, rhetorically difficult and politically difficult task. And so that's why I think the Blairite version of it is in many ways more interesting than what Bill Clinton did. Of course, in both cases, Clinton and Blair were really just moving to the right and uh, calling it something else. And that, I think, is one of the other big problems I have with this whole kind of uh, self-presentation that's provided in uh, in this film. And similarly, there's this implication constantly made that the New Democrats, as they were called, uh, the people in and around the Democratic Leadership Council, were simply bringing the Democratic Party into harmony with what, you know, a majority, a strong majority of the American people already felt. So they were aligning themselves with what was the, already the ambient wisdom in the country. This I have a really big problem with. Uh, first of all, because I don't really think it was true. And secondly, because it so clearly just represents the opposite of what political leadership is supposed to be. I mean, if your ideological opponents successfully embed a whole bunch of really bad ideas, really dangerous ideas, really toxic ideas about how things should be done and how society should be conceived of, if they successfully embed those things in the body politic, just saying, hey, we actually basically agree with all of those things and we just have, we're going to give you a slightly different version of them, a version of them with a different paint job. That is not an exciting and ambitious political project, which is what these people have always claimed. In their self-presentation, it's always been, we were actually uh, these transformative figures who were bringing about a new consensus. And that's not what this was really about at all. The actually transformative figures in American politics or any national politics, whether they're liberal conservative, whether they belong to the right or the left are people who successfully inaugurated some kind of new consensus in the face of considerable political opposition. You can make an argument that Ronald Reagan was one such figure, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, uh, certainly. Both of those figures, uh, you can confidently say, helped preside over a realignment of American politics and society. I don't think you can actually say that accurately about the Clintonite turn, even though that is what the Clintonites themselves claim over and over again to have represented. It's also the case that, you know, let's say we accept just for a minute the idea that the country in some organic sense had actually moved to the right 
and the Democrats under Clinton were simply kind of aligning themselves with that change. Well, if people are bombarded for decades with the same talking points about government spending uh, and how it's out of control, about the deficit, about how welfare is a handout, about how, you know, we've been too soft on crime for too long and it's time we started, you know, centering the victims of crime and punishing the malefactors and all that stuff. If people are just bombarded by that stuff for decades by the leadership of both of America's major political parties, I mean, there is a sense in which it becomes the ambient political wisdom because that's all people hear. There's no alternative. So it represents a huge abdication of political leadership in any meaningful sense to just move to the right and claim, well, we're not really moving to the right. We're just embracing realism or something like that. It's total bullshit. I mean, I don't ask a lot of a movie like this, but if this was a better movie, they wouldn't have just given Jesse Jackson 15 seconds or something. You know, they would have given uh, the critics of the DLC in the 1980s and in the present, or, you know, DLC doesn't exist anymore, but the contemporary critics of this kind of neoliberal turn, they would have given them real airtime. And you might also have seen at least some minimal self-reflection from a few of these people. I mean, one thing I would just love to see from any of these figures is just some kind of vague understanding of why Barack Obama was able to win in 2008, because it certainly wasn't by promising to get the deficit under control. We know big government does not have all the answers. We know there's not a program for every problem. We know and we have worked to give the American people a smaller, less bureaucratic government in Washington. And we have to give the American people one that lives within its means. The era of big government is over. The movie goes through the 1992 Bill Clinton run, goes through some of its ups and downs, you know the ones, on the way to its triumphant conclusion. And then the film ends and there's that montage of pasty white faces. And there's there's a caption at the end of the film that says, the DLC closed its doors in 2011. It's now part of the Clinton Foundation. <laughs> um, that was, first of all, it's funny to me that they made it all the way to 2011. I, I kind of figured that the story was over, like, after 1992. Like, the DLC pretty much became the DNC after that, right? <laughs> like, why did they still have an office? Because it's fun to cosplay as outsiders, I think, is the only reason. I guess so. But secondly, have you looked into this? What do they do now, now that they're part of the Clinton Foundation? Do they still put published papers? Are they still heard from? Who's in it? I don't know anything about, I mean, I, my understanding was that it, it had shuttered its doors because, you know, uh, its founders were riding off into the sunset, uh, you know, their, their work being done. So I don't know anything about its role within the Clinton Foundation or its function there. One thing I will say, and, you know, you could say this about the Blairites as well, is that when this all started, I mean, you know, I've been pretty harsh on these people. And I mean, I don't buy their much mythologized, you know, self-styling at all. But the fact is they, they were genuine and ideologues. I mean, they really believed in this stuff. Triangulation wasn't just, it wasn't merely a political tactic that they adopted kind of on pragmatic grounds or something like that. I mean, they really believed in markets and in using the power of the state to mold particular types of behavior, to mold citizens into good little subjects of a, you know, what was to be a capital owning democracy and all that kind of thing. And as a result, they used to have a brain trust. I mean, there was an intellectual foundation to this, not a very good one, but I mean, 
one that had publications. There was one which I've actually read a lot of. This is one of my uh, guilty pleasures, I guess. It's not quite a guilty pleasure. There's no such thing as guilty pleasures, Luke. If you enjoy it, it's like uh, it's like Judge Judy or the music of ABBA. If you enjoy it, you don't have to feel any guilt at all. Okay, well, let's call it one of my strange political fetish objects. And this is the publication The New Democrat, and particularly... Uh, Bruce Reed's old column that he ran in the New Democrat for years. I have read, I mean, dozens of Bruce Reed columns, and they are so fascinating because he really just does say the same three things over and over again. Some of them are from the early 2000s as well. I don't think, um, you know, I don't think that publication exists anymore. But well into the 2000s, he was just writing the exact same things. When the Democrats were losing to George Bush, you know, guess what his prescription was? It was, we need to get away from all those anti-war activists and all those people that make the relatively small number of rich suburban people uh, in this country uncomfortable, and that's how we win. I guess just as a final point on all of this, I don't really know how to end this discussion because there's so much that can be said. But Professor Lily Geismer, who I quoted from earlier, wrote another piece about uh, suburban voters and their role in the Democratic Party right at the start of this year. It was called Stop Worrying About Upper Class Suburbanites. And there are a lot of important points made in this piece. But one of them is that the suburbs are actually, in many cases, much more mixed income and much more diverse than what's generally understood. So when, you know, neoliberal Democrats say, you know, we need to court the middle of the road people in the suburbs, what they're really just saying is we need to court the higher income people that live in gated communities that don't want to see their taxes raised that, you know, they might put a Black Lives Matter sign on the lawn, but, you know, they also want you know, a serious approach to crime, you know, all that stuff. What they're saying is we need to court those people and center their interests and their values, you know, not the people who are bringing them their Uber Eats, not the people who are serving them coffee, not the people who are, you know, driving them to spin class in a lift. And that has nothing to do with some kind of realist political alignment. That's a political choice to be a right-wing party. (laughs) 